Welcome back to Constant Thunder Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering the Babylon 5 Season 4 episode, Atonement. Now, this is a really good episode, um, and it, it's interesting in the fact that the majority of this episode is devoted to uh, flashbacks to uh, the time just before the Earth Membari War and the time during the Earth Membari War. Uh, as part of the original plan for Season 4, there was going to be a couple episode arc involving uh, stuff to do with the Earthman Barry Warren was going to feature a lot of flashbacks. Uh, and due to the season four crunch that had to be truncated, it was truncated into how to fit it into the coming conflicts between uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, the situation with Sheridan and Elaine and the tensions between the religious and warrior cast of the Mimbari and move on. Uh, just use what was needed uh, and, and continue on because we have to truncate, you know, a lot of story into the, just this one season. Uh, Jameis would later get the ability to do his original plan via the movie in the beginning, which uh, I'm going to be doing between season four and season five. Uh, and so that, that, that was the original plan, was that movie basically was the arc that was going to take place here. Uh, so this is the truncated version. Still really, really good. Now, a couple notes before I get to the, the, the meat of the story, which is the Delenn stuff, uh, is... This is the infamous continuity issue with Third Space. Uh, I covered Third Space last week. Uh, wasn't originally my plan, but I figured I'd do it uh, due to all the hiatuses. I wanted to apologize for that. But Third Space doesn't quite fit in anywhere because it was filmed after the fact uh, and, and was done sort of slapdashily. You know, I even talked about how a lot of it was... Um, uneven and there was quite a bit of filler in it of Zach has his uniform in that in that movie and Franklin's still on board so it kind of is supposed to take place here but Franklin and Marcus leave off uh so presumably it takes place just before Dylan leaves and before Franklin leaves and Zack gets his uniform. We see, it, you know, it gets ripped during the big fight at the end. So maybe this is a new uniform uh, that he's getting at the beginning of this episode. But then his speech to Lanier about the uniform doesn't quite make sense if he was already wearing this type of uniform. So as you can see, there's a bit of like a, like, where does it fit? Because <laughs> it doesn't really um it's the nature of these things. But anyway, I just wanted to point out that, that sort of hilarity. So, uh, the, the, speaking of Zack's uniform, you know, throughout most of season two and season three, we, we, there was a constant talk about the uniform doesn't quite fit him. He kept feeling uncomfortable. Uh, and, uh, that had to do with the night watch. Uh, and we can see his gleefulness when he's able to pull off that Nightwatch armband, throw it on the floor. Uh, and now here, he's got a new uniform, once again, but it does fit. He's not comfortable wearing it, but it does fit perfectly. 
the reason he's not comfortable wearing it is because he doesn't feel like he's ready for this job. He's not deserving of the job. This is Garibaldi's job. This is his friend's job. Why why is he doing this? Well, he's got to, but he's not really comfortable with that knowledge. Just like the Night Watch, the uniform didn't fit because it was a metaphor for his uncomfortability. But now he knows he's suited for this job. He's not doing any shady, morally dubious things. He's not in an uncomfortable Nazi situation. But he doesn't feel right because it feels like a betrayal to his friend. And I like that. It's a continuation of that theme. Um, and then the other bit of this episode uh, is the uh, Franklin and Marcus stuff. So, uh, Sheridan talks about that they have to get out from underneath themselves, that, uh, what Clark and his regime are doing, this propaganda war, this economic war against them, either way they go at it, something can go wrong. You can, they can either remain complacent and sit there and let their, everything be tarnished. You know, the, 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 the infamous thing of, uh, once you tell a lie, enough times you begin to believe it or they can fight it uh openly and have the Clark regime twist that into perceiving them as the villain so they gotta handle this carefully and subtly uh and of course that ending with uh Franklin and Marcus annoying each other and it's one of those few times that the the credits uh is not the theme song. Instead, it's the uh, it's Marcus singing, and it's quite literally the behind the scenes because you can hear the director go cut, <laughs> and Richard Biggs who plays Steve Franco go ah, it's it, it's hilarious. Um, it's a nice bit of levity for the rest of this episode, which is quite dark. Uh, so the Delenn section. Um, now I just want to point out in real history here. Um, it's been over a month since Mira Furlan passed, um, that, I, I wasn't sure when I wanted to bring that up in this podcast, uh, you know, we've lost quite a bit of the Babylon 5 actors and actresses over the years, and it's really a sad thing. Uh, Mira Furlan hit me particularly hard, because Delenn was always one of my favorites. I love every character on this show, that is an obvious, it is my favorite show of all time, but uh, Delenn was such a wise and caring and compassionate individual that I often turn to things she said as um, as inspiration when I'm down. Um, and Mira Furlan, a lot of who Delenn was can be characterized in her. Um, a lot of what Delenn is came from the actress not just the writing uh j just look up you know the the the, the situations of uh you know Mira Furlan uh you know cr crossing the border uh during the uh during the civil war in her home country Czechoslovakia uh to bring hope and joy you know like that that's a very Delenn thing but I just wanted to get that out there um say that that really sucks and She's sorely missed, and it's sad that every few years we lose more and more of these very, very excellent people. Um, 
but she does put in a wonderful performance as always and this episode is really about her in multiple ways of sort of examining where she's been where she is and where she's going so she is being requested to return back to Mimbar so that her clan and the religious cast as a whole can decide whether it is right for her to marry outside of the Mimbari species. If it is right for her to marry a human, in this case Sheridan. Um, of course, the preposterous notion that other people have the right to dictate who and what you should marry. Um, but it is their tradition. It is it is very Mimbari. I've talked about this you know, for a long time since season one. Mimbari very traditionalist and very prideful and insistent upon keeping to this tradition. You cannot break it. And yet they, in many ways, break their own traditions in odd ways, but they, they lie to themselves saying that it's still still kosher, basically, that it is okay to break this tradition. For instance, in the flashbacks, we, we learn about how there was a one above the nine, uh, a speaker uh, who counseled the Grey Council. Uh, they did not vote. They did not uh, make any decisions for the Grey Council, but they ensured that the Grey Council was A, balanced, B, fair, and C, uh, basically saw the whole picture. Uh, this, of course, was Valen, way back in the day, good old Sinclair, and then finally Ducat. And then they had a mourning period, and of course, uh, they have never had another one, and that has caused a permanent imbalance within the Great Council, uh, and uh, the, the lack of perspective, and that eventually eroded into the uh, increased warrior presence within the Great Council and eventually the shattering of the Great Council. Uh, and so, j just continue on with this theme of keeping with tradition but also breaking tradition is, you know, Delenn is not fully Mimbari. She is now half-human, but yet they preside over her like she is full Mimbari and have full autonomy over who and what she is and what she does and it, it it's classic racism in the fact that you cannot pass uh beyond our species because uh we are too great we are too superior we are too superior uh and the fact that they are basically going you must demand the right to marry outside of your lineage out of your species out of your race uh, and we're going to uphold absurd standards to this to this race or this species to determine if that is all right. Um, just to give an example, like this isn't a species thing or a race thing, it's more of a religious thing, but I come from a mixed religion household. Uh, my mother's Christian, my father's Jewish. Uh, and the families have over time come to understand each other and gain a mutual respect but back when my parents first got together and even during the early years of my life they, they did not see eye to eye and they oftentimes butted heads not just on religious concepts but on morals on ideas 
And they constantly berated my parents to find someone better, someone more worthy, someone of their own faith. You see where this is going, right? That it's less about love. It has nothing to do with love. It has nothing to do with caring or compassion or anything of the sort. It's about the belief that only people who think alike can remain pure. But that's the problem. Purity doesn't actually exist. We're not pure anything. We're a mixture of our environments and our gene. You know, I, you know, grew up in the South in the United States. I have certain things that are symbolic of my upbringing, but I don't act like every other Southerner because the Southerner stereotype is, hence a stereotype. There's always some truth in stereotypes. There's some traits you can find, but they're exaggerations. Uh, no one is pure to anything. And this ties into the ending, uh, which I'll get into in a minute, and infection way back in season one. So, uh, and, and, and speaking of the, the, the mixed religion household and the, and the sort of, uh, ex my experiences with religion, Dukat, the actor who plays Dukat, spectacular, uh, du we've heard about Dukat and his greatness since season one, and now we finally get to see him, and he's exactly the kind of wise, spiritual, religious leader you expect him to be. Coming from a mixed religion household, I was primarily raised Christian. Uh, that was a decision by my parents. Uh, but I've had interactions with, uh, you know, members of the Jewish faith, uh, like official members like rabbis to, um, I've been the temple as, as well as I've gone to church and interact with pastors. Um, and I, and I've even met with other people of other religions, uh, like, official practitioners and uh and talked with them about the religion and there there's a commonality you can find the, the the religion is deep and it's personal and it many times it causes a lot of conflict and grief but that's not what i'm here to talk about if you look at a lot of spiritual leaders your pastors your rabbis your priests you know etc etc you can find some commonality there. And what I mean is that these people have devoted their life to understanding complex issues, complex topics, uh, and wish to pass that knowledge to others. They have a sense of enlightenment. They are still human. They are still flawed. They're not above us all. But they have a sense of clarity about them. Uh, serenity, almost, that they have accepted where they are in their life and where it's going, and they wish to give other people that peace of mind. Uh, and Dukat is exactly that way. He is, he's incredibly wise. He always speaks the right words right when he needs to. He is flawed. He does occasionally let his emotions run too hot. Um... But he is, he has the ability to uh, circumnavigate other people's biases to get them to see his point of view. And he has that sense of serenity about him that you're, you're constantly in, in a state of awe, a state of calm around him. 
and I, I like how the the Grey Council during just before the Roman Empire War they had become complacent. Uh, all of them wanted to be isolationists for one reason or another, and it took Ducat bringing Delin, an outsider, into the Grey Council. Someone who is an initiate, someone who is just, you know, an acolyte who just graduated from Temple, who is, you know, j just, just uh, you know, getting started in uh, her career as a religious castman party, wet behind the ears, greenhorn, someone like that who's young, inexperienced, but has great passion, great curiosity, and a child's wisdom. Child's wisdom is very much a lack of experience does not necessarily mean a bad thing. A lack of experience, it, it's a complicated issue, but the, the lack of ability to acknowledge uh, inability, the uh, like you're unable to do something or uh, or to acknowledge bias, etc, just pure unbridled, curiosity. That's what a child's wisdom is in my mind. Uh, it is unvarnished by anything that we would consider um, horrible in the adult world. You know, racism, prejudice, bias, politics, religion, etc. It is the ability to just look at something and go, here's the facts, let's try and do this, let's be better. And it, it takes that outsider's perspective to really get the ball rolling again for the Grand Council. And of course, this leads to great pain, but also great perseverance later, great uh, to a brighter future. Because of the misunderstanding that leads to the Mimbari War, a horrible, horrible misunderstanding of different cultural values, Dukat is killed, uh, and uh, a holy war is declared. And the worst thing of it all is that the Lin was the one who cast the deciding vote. And that weighs on her. She is... She, she's not exactly at fault, but she is at the same time. She let her emotions run high. She was angry... She was full of anguish and despair, and she just, it, it, that, that flooding of rage and emotion, that one moment of rage, of insecurity, caused her to not think things through and yell words she never should have said, no mercy. And that led to countless deaths. Uh, uh, you know, of the humans, the near annihilation of the human species. And she has forever been trying to repent for that mistake. Yes, it was a, it was a mistake, a mistake she acknowledges and a decision she regrets, but it was still her decision nonetheless. And she has to accept that and live with that for the rest of her life. And that's what she's been doing for the past 10 or so years is trying to make amends for that. Um, and, and I like how, uh, Lanier, he, th there's a thing he says here, uh, where he's, where he 
sort of justifies Delenn falling in love with Sheridan as a form of repentance of marrying the two sides of the Membari soul, basically. Um, and Delenn says, you can't possibly believe that. And Lanier says, of course I don't believe that. There are multiple ways to read that. We know that he's in love with Delenn. And we, and we know that in the episode where he confesses that, to Marcus, he talks about how his love is different from ordinary love. It is more pure. Once again, that idea of pure keeps recycling itself here, especially with the Membari traditionalism. Uh, and there's this concept there that he doesn't quite believe it. He truly does believe that Delenn loves Sheridan, but he believes that that love isn't as pure as it should be. And he justifies this thinking, not to Delenn, but saying, but this is what other people would draw, the other conclusions they would draw. And that kind of hints at the fact that, you know, Lanier isn't exactly, you know, uh, he, he, he loves Delenn on both a, like, technical love level and also loyalty love, friendship love. And so he'll follow her into you know, the, 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 the darkest pit of hell if he has to, but he still believes that his love is superior to hers and Sheridan's in a way. Um, and just speaking of Lanier, I like how, uh, Ducat says the exact same things to Delenn, uh, when he asked her to be his aide, that she would later say to Lanier, uh, I, I, you know, raise your eyes, uh, you know, look up. I, I cannot have an aide who's forever looking down, for you'll be always walking into things. Now, the ending here with the Mimbari thing, um, the way they justify what happens is, well, there's a tradition that says that uh, in, in in our olden days, when there was a war between clans, one clan would give a female uh, to, to the other clan, uh, and that would be a sign of peace and cooperation, and the blending of the clans uh, true together, and blah, 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 you know, keep with that racial purity theme. And it's it's a preposterous notion and it, you could tell it's just pulled out of his ass, but it's a way to justify Sheridan Delenn's love. Uh, once again, Mimbari are obsessed with tradition, obsessed with purity, obsessed with pride, that the honest and true love between two people has to be justified. It can't just be taken at face value. Um, and then, of course... Uh, circling back into that racial parody, purity thing, we finally, this is the final, like, official thing I've been talking about in the spoiler sections for so long, but it's now finally said on screen, the Mimbari soul thing can be read in multiple ways. You, If you believe in souls, you can be souls. I talked about this back in the spoiler section of Soul Hunter, as well as the episode where it's revealed what happened during the 24 hours that Sinclair was out. And why they that why the Membari surrendered at the Battle of the Line, uh, but it's a bit more complicated than that. It, you know, these kind of things always have a science fiction 
answer. And any way you look at it, it is plausible and works. And if you want to look at it as a soul thing, that's good. If you want to look at it from a DNA perspective, that's good too. Because uh, Valen, the great, uh, you know, the great leader of the Minbari people, was actually half Minbari because he was Jeffrey Sinclair who converted himself with the Triluminary. So... It stands to reason that, you know, he would have children, and his children would have children, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. And throughout the generations, you know, thousands, a thousand of years of interbreeding, the, you know, the genetics of the Mimbari people, the bloodline of the Mimbari people would be diluted with human DNA. And thus, there is no thing as a pure Mimbari anymore. Uh, and, and that is why the Triluminary responded to Delenn, is because she is a long, long, long distant uh, descendant of Sinclair slash Valen. Um, which, which adds a bit of irony, considering the, uh, the implications of the first season, especially uh, Parliament of Dreams, you know, the, the, the ritual, that, the Reaper ceremony that doubles as a marriage ceremony, and it was heavily implying that uh, uh, the deal with Dylan in Sinclair because, well, that was the original plan. Um, he was not always failing until the situation with the actor came up. So, um, it, that, that adds a bit of weirdness there, but uh, they didn't know at the time. Uh, both the writer, you know, JMS, did not know that this was where the story was going, as a result of the actor having to leave, as well as the characters didn't know. So whatever. But this ties back into Infection. Um, way back in Season 1, I think it's one of the weakest episodes of the entire series. As a matter of fact, I think it's one of my shortest episodes as well uh, on this podcast. Uh, there was just not much to say on that, but the racial purity ideas brought up there that the Hikarans destroyed themselves in obsessing over percentages uh, and, and sort of proclaiming an Aryan race, you know, very Nazi-esque, uh, you know, this is this race is superior to others, while the Mimbari are not pure. And that, that was Sinclair's entire point. Is there's no such thing as pure anything. Um, and so it's, it's nice to have themes that circle back on each other. Um... And, and I like how at the end here, Delint does not tell Sheridan what happened. Uh, you know, she continues on her way, uh, doesn't have to tell him, uh, because it would be too much of a heartache. You, you know, uh, Jameis even talked about this, that the reason she keeps it on the down low is because she doesn't want to upset uh, Sheridan. There, there is already enough grief. Not, there's no point in adding to it. Uh, and, and much like at the beginning of the episode where she doesn't lie, but she uses tradition to get her way uh, out uh, and out from Babylon 5 and into uh, and onto the Minbari ritual by saying, oh, well, we need to do those three nights. We've already done two. We need to do one more. Then she leaves in the middle of the night. She never had the intention of continuing on with that ritual, that tradition, but it was a way for her to lie, because Membari do not lie except to save another, but if she crouches it in tradition, she doesn't have to explain anything, and can just continue on. Uh, and th that is the way 
you know, it, it's complicated because you can either t say that she is wrong for not telling him, uh, just like she was wrong in not telling him about Anna, or you can you can understand the grief of a cause and understanding not telling him. I think there, I think both answers are viable, and, and it depends on your perspective. I think. Um, I think Dudlin trusts Sheridan enough to know uh, that he doesn't need to know that you know he he's made amends for that war. She's made amends for that war. It's time for everyone to move on. Uh, but otherwise, this is a fantastic episode and uh, touches a lot on uh, the Dolin character wrapping up some of the Sinclair Valen stuff. Uh, and it's just overall very, very good. Um, and of course, a lot of a lot of these scenes, the flashback scenes will be reused and reorganized in in the beginning, which was the, uh, you know, the movie that kind of fulfills the originally planned Earth Minbari flashback arc. But until then, I'll see you later. Bye.